Welcome to Talking Sock. As artistic director of Snuff Puppets, Andy Freer has been wowing audiences for over 30 years. It's an important part of culture and society for people to be out on the streets and kind of seeing big images of their archetypes and their culture reflected back at them. In this episode, I talk with Andy about the philosophy behind Snuff, as well as the initiatives it runs here and all over the world. Join Andy and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. My name's Pete Davidson, and today I'm joined by Andy Freer, Artistic Director of Snuff Puppets, which is, Andy, an institution of puppetry in Melbourne. So Andy joins us today just over the road, a stone's throw away, but he joins us by correspondence due to the lockdown measures in Melbourne. So Andy, thank you so much for being here, and um, thanks for so much for being on Talking Sock. Thanks, Pete. Hi. How are you going? I'm Good so to be well. here. It's <laughs> oh, good to have you. Hey, Andy, first question, why puppets? Because you can pretty much do anything you like with puppets. You can you can express so many things. You can literally kind of take their heads off and, and replace them their heads with fish heads. You can um, You can tell all kinds of stories that you just really can't do with actors, human actors, and actors tend to have, can have kind of psychological issues and and egos that kind of make it difficult to create work that is, I don't know, the kind of work that I like to do, which is kind of archetypes, working with archetypes and the big stories, the big stories of um, life and death. I mean, snuff in a way is quite a, a dangerous word and it kind of evokes this kind of feeling of fear, but it's also got this kind of cuteness to it. So yeah, we just love to kind of create theatre and create stories and and do whatever we want to do basically how would you describe or define the word snuff if you were to describe it for our listeners i mean it's a great word not often used mm. what would be your definition for snuff pretty much to to die or to finish or to end but then there is also the sex sex and death which you know sex is about life life giving and death is obviously the end point. So it's all these kind of things about life and death and everything in between and and rebirth, you know, the cycle of life. So, yeah, and it's kind of wanting to be a bit, as I said before, a bit dangerous and a bit kind of provocative and, you know, ask, getting people to ask, well, yeah, why snuff? Why why such a, a word? But it kind of just runs off the tongue as well, a bit snuff puppets. It's a kind of a nice two words together so yeah it actually came from a um a a conversation I had with a a friend when we were starting out and we were doing works in Canberra with large groups of people and we were doing big puppets and kind of protests and activist kind of actions and we had this dream of storming parliament in Canberra and we were doing lots of like fires and um fireworks and flares and a kind of outdoor spectacle pretty kind of anarchic and and wild and we just had an idea that we'd have to burn some of the puppets as a kind of a really kind of oh, yeah. poignant thing. But then it was like, well, what's going to happen to the puppeteer inside the puppet? And ah. they, we just kind of jokingly agreed that they'd have to go down with the puppet and they would end up being a snuff puppet. And suddenly this kind of word phrase came out and it was like, yeah, let's let's go with that. That is such a wild origin point for the snuff. I love that. <laughs> Um, and I, the first thing I think of when I think of snuff is um, the final line from Macbeth um, or the Scottish play. Oops, so didn't have said Macbeth. Oh, yeah. Out brief candle, life is but a flame. You know, that lovely idea of just taking something and and it's gone. Yeah. Snuff since then, uh, we'll get to uh, where you started out in a moment, but snuff has yeah. kind of developed a real signature style and it mm. tends to be costume puppet and sort of giant puppet stuff. So as an extension yeah. to my question, why puppets? Why that mm-hmm. form of puppets? Why giant puppets? It, it kind of just really evolved out of... So I started off in theatre and kind of experimental theatre and and as we were building our sets and our our work there was a lot of kind of construction of large objects and large sets and I think it just comes from a mix of wanting to be out of the theatre basically and be outdoors and obviously be able to have a big impact and a visual impact so giant puppets yeah which just felt like a, a kind of a natural form of theatre performance and celebration and spectacle and all these kind of elements mixed together 
and I suppose in mixture of art, I suppose making the puppets is a lot more like sculpture than actually kind of, we don't really design the puppets in a way. We kind of just get our hands in and start building them and, and see what comes out. The process is all very organic and, yeah, the puppets just sort of come to be and, and come to exist and and then they're there and we we keep working with them year after year. So they're, they're kind of, I don't know, the giant thing is there's a lot of tradition within South America and Carnival and this whole element of, you know, when they dress up in these big folk costumes in Europe somewhere and they chase the kids around the streets to give them this sense of excitement and also fear and get people just excited and, and with this sense of it's an important part of culture and society for people to be out on the streets and, and kind of seeing big images of their archetypes and their their culture reflected back at them. So, yeah, it's a big a mixture of art and theatre and performance and then big sort of social gatherings. So giant puppets seem to cut through, you know, they stand above the heads of humans and, and can kind of dominate the landscape. I've asked that question a few times to a few people and what you've just mm. mentioned there about Carnivale and mm. sort of that cultural aspect of South American puppets, but the idea of yep. the archetype staring people in the face and actually creating a point of fear is really, really interesting yeah. because often with puppetry, it's, it's. I mean, you can see there's a pink puppet behind me. That's adorable, right? It's, it's a cute factor. And, <laughs> yeah. and you've kind of very deliberately gone for the opposite and had that sort of reverence for the puppet as a giant piece, mm. a giant character. And you mentioned mm. before something about archetypes. So can I ask you, mm. what do you think are the archetypes that you really play with? Well, they, they kind of just, I suppose anything can be an archetype and, the way pup, the puppets in snuff puppets have come to be, it, it's more like the puppets come first. So there's an idea for a puppet a character and then it gets made and then it's sort of like, well, who are you and how do you work and how do you exist? And then then the, we get more puppets to kind of join that puppet and then the sort of family grows. And then I talk about it like a world, you know, each of our shows are like individual worlds where all the puppets within it kind of exist. So within all those... Yeah, I suppose making a puppet, you kind of identify what character you want it to be and then it becomes an archetype just by the concentration of, of that focus and the, and the energy you put into it. So the first two puppets that we have, uh, Granny and Mr Fool, and they're the oldest puppets, but they're also the matriarch and the patriarch, we call them, of, of the <laughs> company. But they're literally, they are the oldest puppets. So Granny was the first puppet I literally made and then Mr. Fool. And they just existed as heads and then they just had this fabric flowing off them as bodies. But then as time went on, their bodies came into existence and then we created this whole show called Scary and Mr. Fool was the kind of introduced the, the show at the beginning and then Granny was, does this whole creation story where she gives birth to a human on stage and... And at the end, Mr. Fool gets chopped up and opened up and out of his guts, out of his yeah. body comes this little vulnerable human in their underpants sort of staring into the spotlight. So wow, they just come to be, I suppose. I mean, one of our more recent puppets, the butcher, he's quite famous around town. He's got a bunch of cows. So, And he's he's like the butcher. He's covered in blood. He's got his striped apron and his knife and... But he's actually a reformist and he was once, you know, killing cows, but he's now a vegetarian and his job is to get around <laughs> telling people the, the the evils of industrial animal farming. And so, you know, yes. he's a he's a provocateur. I mean, it's all about provoking, I suppose, what we can do. And going back to what I was saying before about you can do anything with puppets, you can kind of kill them and kind of open them up and then it's sort of like you have this whole metaphor for what's inside and is it the soul or is it just the intestines? And you can just sort of keep going off on all these tangents with this kind of body of a literal body. And then, yeah. I really love the poetry behind that, you know, the reverence that you're mentioning and the visceral versus the the spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. It's all connected. And we have this ability to kind of make all these kind of objects that can fit, fit into that kind of realm. So, Yeah. So tell us about your beginnings with Splinters Inc. and how that became an extension to evolve into Snuff Puppets. So Splinters was a company of ragtag artists, poets, musicians, a whole group of um, people in Canberra that were 
trying to make work that was really outside the theatre, outside the stage, in very kind of unusual spaces, burnt out houses in quarries. And basically I left high school and within a year I kind of joined up with these guys and and just started making kind of crazy theatre performances that were very like promenade. The audience would be kind of taken around these environments and there'd be all this kind of work. I feel like I talk about splinters being like the most anarchic kind of working anarchic experience that I've ever been involved in. Cause it was really, there wasn't really any directors. It was just all the artists coming together and we just throw things around and, and make work. And so that kind of just grew and grew. And within that I was performing and then making work, but also starting to make puppets. And, and that's where I kind of made the head of granny and Mr. Fool and some, some skeletons and, some characters like that and basically splinters grew and grew until it became this kind of huge unwieldy beast full of these kind of young young artists and very enthusiastic and crazy kind of people and it was by the time we were in Adelaide at the Fringe Festival performing in the old Adelaide jail that had just been decommissioned five years previously and we all basically moved in and took up some of us took up cells and (laughs) <laughs> some Sick. of us had rooms in town and and we basically just converted the whole prison jail into like all these different wings into different theatre scenes and sets and the whole walking yard was this huge kind of water and fire spectacle and it was a huge cathartic kind of experience and kind of for the prison to be turned into this kind of wild, theatrical, beautiful thing was just this beautiful way to see something going from such a hard, hard, tough, you know, miserable space to this kind of place of creation and, and beauty. And so, yeah, from there we basically, and that, that was that show was kind of massive and there was so many people and it was just like myself and my partner, we kind of had just had enough a little bit and we basically just left that show. It was great to do, but we just kind of left it in my truck and we just drove back. I think we were based in Sydney then and we were driving back and we just drove through Melbourne and just said, hey, let's just stop here for a while. And we did. And, yeah, we got a big warehouse in Footscray down by the Maribyrnong River and built our own house in there. And then we had the rest of this huge, huge space to make puppets. And I suppose the idea of, you know, I've always been attracted to large spaces, large halls, large industrial sheds and, and basically, you know, to fit the puppets that I want to make. So it's sort of like the space can determine what you end up making. So from there, we were like eight years just living and playing in this great space that we'd made our own and just kept building more and more puppets. So we literally arrived with just, you know, a truck and Granny and Mr. Fool on the back and a few bits of metal. (laughs) So, yeah. Felt like pioneering days back then. That was like from 90. So we we, we, we kind of say that Snuff Puppets was incorporated in 92, um, but it kind of existed before that. But that was a kind of a date that we could say where like an official ink. Then we kind of went on to make a number of shows and then more and more puppets and it just keeps going on and on. <laughs> I want to know what kind of puppetry did you grow up with and how did you know that you wanted to make puppets you say that it, it happened after high school but surely there must have been mm. some influences before that yeah I suppose I never thought I would want to be making puppets I was always into theatre and I, I kind of had this lucky experience or just in my high school I had a series of teachers drama teachers that were very into this very kind of experimental theatre practice and they would kind of test out their experiments on their students and I basically had you know maybe four or five years of different teachers throwing us these amazing kind of ideas of how to make theatre from Grotowski, you know Brecht, um, Arto, all these pretty intense theatre makers and and writers and and practitioners so I felt like that was a real breeding ground or for me to kind of really think about how to cross over you know theater and art and performance and the kind of human the human experience I suppose so really from theater 
I also talk about, I saw a show when I was 12. It was the first time I was left alone with my brother and sister at home. My parents went to a funeral in Queensland and they got us tickets to this show at the Canberra Theatre called La Claca. It was presented by this company from Spain and the puppets were actually these giant big puppets that were based on the, the artwork of Jean Miro, you know, Miro, the artist, yes, yes. the surrealist artist. Beautiful work. Um, it's really, I saw a documentary a few years ago. I've never seen anything of it since, but it's really worth looking up. But basically it was Miro's paintings come to life on this stage, these big eyeballs and these big feet and these really kind of abstract, slightly animalistic and human figures just stomping around. And Unreal. basically it was about the Spanish Civil War and when you're at that age and you're kind of just being given something so strong and powerful and, and they were giant puppets and they were just beautiful to watch. And I suppose it was just like, yeah, it was just exciting and thrilling and, and out of otherworldly and kind of, you know, just totally. a, a beautiful work. So, so yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. You know, you've just spoken about some of the imagery that I remember from some of your really incredibly recognizable work with snuff puppets, because like, I remember that during the COVID-19 pandemic which we're going through now mm. your campaign mm. video everybody isolates included those yeah. sort of same things like big eyeballs people people's mouths and hands like all separated and moving yeah. around neighborhoods and it, it went viral yeah. and yeah. you saw those magnificent body parts moving around the streets of melbourne and then you've got this mm. mischievous the scullies and the seagulls so can you tell us about snuff's characters and where some of these ideas originated from you mentioned before your process mm. that it it starts with mm. the character so I want to know yeah. where that character then turns into a story. Because my biggest problem with my puppetry mm. is that I do, I do the same thing. It's quite similar. I make a character and then I go, mm. cool, now what? And that yeah. next point for me is going to be the really interesting stuff. When do these characters go into mm. story? So quite self-indulgently, I'm going to ask you this question to help myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the drive to keep kind of uncovering what you want to do or what the puppet can do and why it exists in the first place and and you know can they can be really tough questions but i i suppose it's like what does this puppet mean and what what does it represent and how would it live in the world i suppose because i've always taken them puppets out on the street i'm always very aware that i'm just putting this puppet out there and i kind of you know i'm I, i'm hoping that people will like to see it but it's also part of the experience and the experiment is to kind of see how people react and and what people kind of get from that and right. and often you know people are terrified of the puppets but then there are people who are like completely <laughs> kind of bewitched by them or drawn into them and and don't know really know what they're looking at but then it's sort of like it kind of triggers off things in people's in people audiences minds and I suppose because we also put them on the street without you know, it's not like a paid audience. So it's sort of like people are just confronted by this image. And I suppose that spurs me on to kind of think, well, why <laughs> do these puppets exist and why are they here and, and what's their point in their in their life? And obviously it comes back to what I want to do and what I can physically manage, but it's just this sort of exponential growing of the puppet and its characters and it's really, I was talking about this idea of a world where everything, all these puppets within this one kind of realm all exist within the rules of that world. So this world, the world right. of scary is about this traveling troop of giant puppets who are like the stars and then the skeletons are like the managers or the skeleton crew. Cool. And then there are humans that are kept in boxes out the back and are brought out to kind of show the audience, <laughs> you know, the, the human condition or the, the reason for the human condition. And in oh, the end, I realised that after many years, I realised that scary is actually about religion and it's about how humans create gods to then control their lives. They create this kind of imaginary figure that somehow then controls their life and says you can't do this and you can't do that. It's, it's a bit like Whoa. this kind of ironic kind of situation. So at the end of scary the skeletons chop up Mr. Fall and rip open his belly and pull open his intestines. And there's this little human sweating, you know, as the, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, this little man behind this giant yes. um, beast. 
to kind of express this idea to the to the world. So so all the characters in Scary kind of exist. They're all symbiotic existing together. And then I'll go back to the butcher. So when we made the butcher, that was for we did this big show in Cardinia Park in Geelong with back-to-back theatre. And it was this kind of huge show on the 50-metre line of the Cardinia Park football ground. It was called Boomtown and it was basically about the Boom family, this kind of white working-class family from Geelong who were living in this town called Boomtown. And, yeah, I think because it was, like, rural or something, we I decided, oh, let's make some cows and maybe we should make sheep and, you know, get this kind of Australian farming idea out. And I suppose because of my own personal ideas about, you know, Australian farming and I've got kind of strong issues about it in a way that I feel like Australia's apparently before all Australian animals, native animals are all soft poured animals, but mm-hmm. all all the introduced animals like cows, sheep, pigs and chickens, they've all got its hard feet that's basically not right for the Australian landscape. And that's right. why a third of Australian is is you know is basically um worthless land. It's all being compounded down and eroded by and just farming practices. It's all introduced from Europe. And you know, I, I grew up with quite a good awareness of what how unique Australia is as a kind of a, a natural landscape and a natural land and and why can't we just use the resources of the plants and the animals instead of needing to rely on this kind of European or English kind of idea of, of farming. So, mm. so yeah, I've always wanted to make, you know, cows and then somehow reflect that idea, you know, have his bloody butcher getting around, chopping away at his, with his knife and with what I believe, either kind of philosophically or ethically or politically, it's sort of like I can make a puppet to represent that or flip it on its head and get those messages out, I suppose. But it's not politically driven or it's just this, you know, I have a medium that I can make puppet that can then kind of go out and do its thing. Yeah, you have such a sort of visual artist conceptual basis behind everything you do by the sounds of what you're saying. And, and And it does really speak to that origin point with with Yon Myro's work. And I love that. So I want to know more about this COVID-19 pandemic, Everybody Isolates video, because it was so popular. And, you know, yeah. how did you do it? And what was it in response to for you? It was really um, in response to the pandemic, but also the idea that we couldn't actually be at our work and be in our, in our workshop and, and kind of do what we were doing. And literally having to go home so we kind of just thought well let's take some puppets home <laughs> and then we thought well let's film it and then we thought well let's make a little story out of it so we kind of just put those things together and basically had the puppets you know leaving the workshop and getting in the car and going home and and then we just did it very quickly like in in a day day or two and it was a lot of fun and it was very spontaneous and it was just like let's just do it and let's just put it out there I mean we do have we've had a few viral kind of um, clips going off so we kind of knew that we had an audience for it and we could tap into that I think it just hit a nerve at the time when this was all crashing down on us this pandemic and it was sort of like oh this is our future now we're there's no vaccine for you know 18 months and all these harsh realities were you know staring us down the down the barrel but I think often I feel like we have this access to our puppets in a way that we can respond very quickly to very current news and very current situations. So, yeah, it's kind of exciting to be able to just make something and then that's our expression of what's going on. And I'm sure it's shared by a lot of people, but told through the through the eye of the eye <laughs> and told through, you know, these body parts which are actually body parts from a, a huge puppet called Everybody. Oh. That's it's the biggest puppet in the world, we're pretty sure. It's 26 and a half metres long and it has all the body parts all put together into one big body. And then all the body parts come off and wow. tell the story of everybody. It's like the every human in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the byline is everybody's born, everybody cries, everybody shits, everybody dies. So oh, it's wow. a kind of a work in four acts and just tells the story of of life, of human life through its body parts. <laughs> so have you toured with yeah. that puppet? 
Yeah, we've taken it to Brazil. Um, that's was very exciting to Sao Paulo for this 24-hour festival. Yeah, and it's performed once in, twice in Melbourne. So we'd love to get it out, but it's massive and it's got a few controversial <laughs> scenes. There's genitals, heaven Ooh. forbid. So, <laughs> I mean, I'd love it, but it's massive. It's a massive work, and um, but hopefully we'll get it out again. Before COVID-19, obviously, your company has now travelled with a number of shows to over, like, 30 countries or something. So I yeah. want to ask you, like, what's the recipe for a tool-ready show? Like, what do you have to have ready? What do you have to have prepared? You know, how, how do you get to that point of making it ready for a tour? I suppose you have to have a show that is kind of tested and, and worked on in your own local for your own local audience. It's kind of works for you. You've had a number of seasons of it. And you can kind of package it up in a video or a, a way to then show people, presenters, festivals, any, anyone else who, who might be interested. I mean, it is a hard job to kind of sell work and it kind of it's more about building up a reputation and, and having the kind of work that can cross borders, cross cultures. I mean, we always talk about snuff puppets because we don't use language very much at all. So the visual language and the, and the archetype language is a kind of a universal language. So um, we kind of feel like we can get through that issue. Yeah, I mean, the first few years, I, I started going to the performing arts market that was in Adelaide and with my just my briefcase and a bunch of little um, brochures and stuff. And, you know, it's quite challenging and scary and confronting to present your work to a complete stranger and say hey you interested in this and oh boy don't we know you know it just takes a lot of a lot of persistence and a lot of just pushing it out but i think you know knowing where your your kind of work would fit as well is really important and knowing i suppose just how how your work can kind of exist outside the comfort zone that is built in within your own kind of workshop and and space and then you kind of take it out We've always been into kind of being out there and feels like a kind of a natural thing to just keep travelling and, and taking the puppets around. I suppose because most of our work is outdoors, it kind of lends itself to festival, outdoor festivals and things like that. I mean, it's a lot of factors and I suppose, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, but it's it's worth it. I think it's just dogged persistence as well, just knowing that, it's it's worth it and and you just sort of keep keep going for it yeah it gives me a lot of encouragement and a lot of drive to now want to you know take a puppet outside and see what happens in the streets particularly now when people are looking for joy in the streets and their routine of their walk around the park 15 million times over the past six months is is probably getting a bit a bit boring so maybe a puppet could could bring some joy into that space and it's i guess it's still you know it is able to be done in a social distanced way. Um, I want to know about yeah. the pandemic and how it's been devastating for the arts as we know. How is mm. Snuff surviving and what strategies have worked to keep the ship sailing for you guys? It's really interesting. I suppose, you know, for us, it's actually because we because we work so much on the smell of an oily rag, we're always chasing dollars and grants and we're always trying to get money to do the work we do. And because you know, it's giant puppets. It's a lot of people needed to kind of create the work and to perform the work. Um, we do actually need to, you know, have a certain amount of money coming in. And so we don't really have a lot of money, you know, in our stores, but we can actually, because of the pandemic, we were actually able to get on JobKeeper. It was the first time we felt, you know, I'm, I'm actually fine because I'm employed full-time, but a number of other artists, you know, were able to be, put on in a more secure way so it's always this opposite you know there's always this one rule and then sometimes it seems like for snuff puppets the opposite is the perfect situation for us it's just a little bit this zen thing I think I always I believe in this idea of opposites that each thing is equally valuable it's just which way you decide to go so we're kind of better off (laughs) since the pandemic (laughs) than um we were before I mean that's not to be glib or anything it's just that it's just worked out for us and we had this our first fundraising campaign was going to be launched in May as a big event at the um at the Footscray Drill Hall our workshop and obviously we couldn't 
do it. We're going to run it as a one-night event. It was going to be this puppet adoption auction party thing where we'd bring out the puppets one by one and they'd cool. be bidded off for the highest bidder and all these kind of things that we had to basically just scrap and the whole campaign went online. So we mm. turned the whole thing around and created a page and, and created some videos for the for the campaign and and it's been launched in, you know, it's been going for a, a month or so now and it's really a nice thing. It's the first time for us in our whole history that we've ever done a fundraising campaign and looking for kind of patrons and donors and so it's interesting for us to let this sort of unfold and see how it works. But um we're a very, very small team. There's like myself and two others in the, in the office, and then there's um, we have someone doing graphics, and there's some uh, new artistic associate, and it's pretty much just us. And we kind of just manage to do everything, and then we bring in performers and artists for for gigs and and other things. I suppose the big thing for the arts is that, and for our kind of performing arts activities, is that theatre and real is is the most human of art forms and I suppose we kind of rely on this idea of people coming together as a community into a space and being very together in a room watching and enjoying and participating and, and I suppose for us that's even greater because we just love the idea of being in a large crowd of people and you know pushing our puppets mm. through and and creating chaos and creating this kind of excitement mm. and with this idea that that might not be able to happen for a while or even forever now I don't know with this new sense of fear and this new sense of I don't know <laughs> social distancing is such a strong concept and for us as theatre makers and and performing art makers it's sort of like it's the opposite of what we want and and expect from our audiences and our community and yeah it's kind of very tragic. So Wendy where can people go to contribute to your fundraiser? They can go to snuffpuppets.com slash lovers. Just Aww. you can go to our website and um, click on the lovers tag and you'll see a whole page of things that you can get into. There's three tiers of rates of donations and you can become a snuff buff or you can become a snuff nut or you can become a snuff god. And <laughs> um, yeah, it's running for another couple of months. It's actually was actually supported by Creative Partnerships Australia. A government organization so it's through plus one so every dollar that's donated gets doubled up to thirty thousand. so for us it's more about just bringing people into the company and like feeling like people can you know we're opening our doors and we're inviting people in and we have all these things that we want to kind of show people and discuss and, and talk with people about and just get closer to the company basically for sure that's what we're hoping for I hope so too. Well, you are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Andy Freer of Snuff Puppets. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Andy in just a minute. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with Pete Davidson and Andy Freer. It's time for our segment now called The Geek Out, in which my guest and I mention something that's been getting us through social isolation. I'm going to start with mine first. So, Andy, I don't know if you've ever read Philip Pullman's books, his Dark Materials series, but it's a beautiful, beautiful story, and I'd love to see it done as a puppet show one day. It's a trilogy series set in Oxford, and recently he's actually created this second two prequel and sequel to that story and I have to say in the last two months if this insane second COVID isolation lockdown I've had so much screen time that just getting myself around a big chunky book that I don't have to have a blue light staring me in the face with has been magical but yeah I would highly recommend my geek out for this week is Philip Foreman's new series The Book of Dust it is awesome Andy 
what are you doing in, in lockdown? How are you, what are you geeking out on? Well, I really um, respect your idea of getting away from the screen and the, that thing in front of your face. So I am in the garden, really. I have a huge back oh. garden. It's like three gardens in one. I'm wow. very lucky. Just scored it in sunshine. And it's a bank canvas, so basically I'm just building, creating garden beds, building structures, got all these things that I'd never have time to do otherwise to just sort of get into it. And now it's getting a bit warmer. I can really just sort of get out there. And there's a proven thing about putting your hands in soil. There's apparently chemicals in soil that have the similar effect as Prozac. (laughs) Whoa! Really? And literally, I, you know, someone said you never see an unhappy gardener. And it's really, I'm sure it's something about... Just getting your hands in the soil, getting that buzz and and feeling connected to the earth. All right. Yeah. So we've been talking mostly about your touring shows and activations. I'd like to talk more about the philanthropic side of snuff. So tell us a little bit about the People's Puppet Project. Ah, yes. The People's Puppet Project, the PPPs. They're like a beautiful work that we've been doing for like 20 years Basically, we come into a community with um, some materials for building giant puppets and we work with a group of people from anywhere, like we've done it all over the world, so we've done it in most strange and interesting places. And basically over two weeks or three weeks, we work and live with these people and build puppets that uh, have been designed by them. Basically, we facilitate a process where the participants conceive, design, build, and then perform a giant puppet show. It's all from scratch, but we kind of do it all together, and it's this really beautiful experience. It's like making a show, but in a very condensed two-week period. It requires a lot of commitment from the people, but then once you get people coming every day and building these giant puppets and they kind of don't know what they're doing, but they're just building and, and creating and and we've got a band in the corner making music and we've got people cool. over there writing scripts and or making costumes and and then it kind of all culminates in this big either parade that leads to a performance or or just some kind of beautiful, great big performance that, you know, is seen by the town or all the family and friends of the participants. And it's really um, a beautiful experience. And we learn from being the uh, snuff puppet artists, you just couldn't get any better than learning about other cultures and being embedded into a cultural life, as opposed to maybe, you know, coming to a a city and you go into your hotel and you go to the theatre and then you go back to your hotel and you kind of are stuck in a bit of a, a realm that you kind of don't see a lot of the actual country. But the way we do this, it means you're really embedded into the community and and we kind of start the process off on the first day like we play a few games and get people all kind of working together and then we just ask the people usually about 20 25 people tell us about your life and tell us about your culture and tell us about your history and your folk stories your modern folk stories you know things that are really important to you and and lots of people just throw out ideas. You know, some people, some cultures, people just don't talk at all. They're very shy and don't want to kind of speak out. But we're kind of just saying anything is possible. Anything is, at this stage, anything is up for being kind of dreamed into a, a giant puppet performance. And by the end of the day, we have these all these images and stories and we just do drawing and people just, I kind of show people very rudimentarily how to make a giant puppet with the cane and bamboo and, the, and all the structure and stuff. And then they go away and start just drawing images from our conversations. And by the end of the day, we have all these drawings and all these stories and we go away and disseminate all that and pick out a few of our favourites and then find joining threads. And we come back the next day and propose this idea that, Let's do this this work where there's a king and a queen and there's these fish people and, you know, it's like all kinds of weird and incredible stories that can just be woven into this one big story. And, yeah, mm. it's one of the most more exciting parts of, the, of my work where, you know, it's not on me or our team to come up with the whole thing. It's all on these people and, and you just get these amazing kind of stories coming out. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful process. And I think it's my favourite process is just devising with people in the room. It gives, there's so much energy. Oh, yeah. 
What is, have yeah. you got a favorite time or a favorite place that you've been to or a favorite show or wherever you've gone to and done this? Um, we did a few in Indonesia, in um, Yogyakarta. And the first one we did was quite incredible because we were there in Yogyakarta. And while we were leaving Melbourne, there was a volcano called Mount Merapi that was highly active. And it was like 30 mm. Ks out of Yogyakarta. It's this big volcano that was smoking and was sort of like, okay, we're going to go to this this city and we'll, you know, be careful or whatever. And then, anyway, we get off and we start the workshop and and because this Mount Merapi is so present in everybody, we ask questions like what's going on and basically get this whole mythology about King Merapi and then down in the, at the ocean is the Queen of the South Sea and there's these tunnels underneath Jogjakarta, where when the king and the queen are arguing, the spiritual leaders that still exist, there's still royalty in Jogjakarta, and these spiritual people move up and down in these tunnels trying to placate the king and the queen. And so this was this amazing kind of mythology story about this kind of very present situation. And then on, I think, the third morning of the workshop, I was in my bed and I'm basically thrown out of my bed. The walls were shaking. All the tiles were falling off. First thing in my head was, fuck, the Mount Merapi is erupting. You know, I Ooh. get out of my hotel and it wasn't a volcano. It was actually an earthquake. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So it was out on the street and it was just like devastation and it was it was massive. Christ. But basically it was the fault line so you know indonesia's on this ring of fire so there's always mm. volcanoes earthquakes it's a very um volatile set of islands and stuff but basically it was the queen of the south sea had which is the australian continental plate had shifted and sent an earthquake through Jogjakarta, and the line that the you could see the devastation and then you know obviously in an earthquake there are houses that don't fall down but the line basically went up to Mount Merapi. So it's sort of Whoa. like, and that was the beautiful thing about Indonesia is it's like you're living, it's like a living culture. So everyone, you know, wine, call it the shadow puppets. Then there's the dancing and the music and everyone's an artist. So everyone learns an art form when you're young. And so, and everyone's still referencing the, the Ramayana, the, the old stories of the Hanuman, the monkey king and, Rama and Sinta and all this Hindu mythology, which is you still see in in everyday life. So I think yeah, Indonesia was such because it had such a strong puppetry, visual art, theatre performance kind of world. It just felt great to be there and sharing our puppet style. So we basically made their puppets that are ancient into giant puppet form, and we did a version of the Mahabharata with the Hanuman and the Monkey King and. We made 30 monkeys and had all these kids running around oh. doing this big story, which is about saving Rama's wife from from hell or somewhere with a rope. And so, yeah, Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, Indonesia sounds amazing. One thing that's really come out of this year is the Black Lives Matter campaign. And it's mm. really driven home to me how much more we need to tell First Nation stories and the stories of Aboriginal people, particularly in Australia. Yeah. And I want to know, yeah. can People's Puppet Project be done or has it been done with Aboriginal communities in Australia? Well, yeah, we, we created a work back in early 2000s. It's called Net Net's Picnic. It was a kind of a commission we got from uh, a guy called Johnny Harding, who was um, Aboriginal arts coordinator for the city of Melbourne and he booked us to do a piece for the Moomba Parade and it was based off he wanted it to be about bunyips so bunyips are these kind of Australian mythological characters and mm -hmm. through the guidance of Johnny Harding and a few other uh, Aboriginal people in Melbourne we had this situation where we had groups from the five there's five tribes in Victoria and basically they came together or participants came together and we and we built puppets in in our space based off bunyips. So we we gathered bunyip stories from Victoria, and there are all these different stories from the from Geelong and from from um, Warrnambool and from Bairnsdale and all these different spaces. And and from that work, we kind of and it often happens with some some PPPs. We kind of go back to the same place and develop the work and develop it to the point where we go, well, let's make a full show. Let's make a full professional show and that can kind of go on to exist in its own right. So, yeah, we went on to make this work called Nyet Nyet's Picnic, which is 
basically a, a bunch of bunyip stories all around a giant mound of dirt with a fire and a and a, and a billabong. And we have these puppets now in our in our space, and they're in storage. But we, you know, we're all white. We're not all white, but we're all kind of white people who we don't really have the right just to kind of use these puppets and um, get out there with them. We've just been recently looking for Indigenous performers and people to get involved and and maybe one day, you know, the whole Bunyip group of puppets could be taken over by some Indigenous artists who want to run with them and work with them. But, yeah, so, yeah, it's really, um, I mean, it's such an incredible artistic, cultural history of Aboriginal history in Australia and, you know, it's so on the almost in another world, another parallel universe where their storytelling and their dream storytelling is so so powerful and so beautiful and it's just sort of complete in a way. And I suppose, yeah, more and more there's a lot of focus in the arts on Indigenous art and culture and performance. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm so desperate to try and find a voice for Aboriginal people in puppetry. And, and if our listeners know of anyone who does do puppetry or do some form of puppetry arts, uh, let us know because yeah. I'd love to speak with people who um, do represent Indigenous cultures. Yeah. You've been doing this gig now for over 30 years and so with People's Puppet Shop Project, you've kind of become a bit of a teacher. So as a mm. teacher, what have you learned about puppetry and performance and what is there that you could impart to our listeners if there's anything really, you know, what's the crux of, of puppetry after 30 years of doing it? For me, a lot about it is the process, a lot about it, a lot about the satisfaction of working is about the human connection and I can be inspired by anyone and anyone who is inspired to do something and to create work for me is an inspiration in itself. So I feel like there shouldn't be any boundaries. There shouldn't be any kind of limitations. There, nothing is right or wrong. Sometimes I think people overthink things and, and kind of self, I do it a lot to myself, but self-censor ideas and go oh that's not right or this is not right and it's such a physical art form and I suppose more so for us with our giant puppets that you kind of literally have to put on your back and you know they're like 20-30 kilos some of them and they're just really they take you over your body but in a way it's so liberating and it's cathartic and it's purging and it's all these kind of things and also there's a thing about ego with puppets and I think to that you kind of lose your ego and you lose your this idea that you you know as opposed to being a human actor where it's all about you and everyone's looking at you and sort of like you have to convey this thing and you have to be grave and you have to be all this kind of things that can be very confronting and kind of psychologically slightly twisted in a way and you know with puppets you really hide behind the puppet and you kind of you embody the puppet and your ego and your identity goes into that puppet and yeah and I think more and more it's really refreshing for people who are into performing arts to kind of let go of this idea that you know they are the the figure that needs to convey all this kind of information and emotion and passion or whatever and and the puppet you know, if you've created the puppet yourself or you've you know, you've invested all this energy, physical energy into this lump of fabric and you're already playing with this idea of this sacred object or this fetishized object, which is in part ritual, evokes all these things that probably, you know, hundreds of years ago people were way more in tune with the power of the object to convey or to be a part of this community of audiences and, and art appreciators and, and theatre goers and yeah, just not just believing that there's nothing wrong. I like the idea that you could put a you know Hessian sack over your head and and that can be a puppet. It kind of embodies a lot of things. Yeah. It for me embodies something that it's about hiding, about being very poor and just like a Hessian bag. And you could create so many things just out of a, a bag. And and what, what a lot of puppeteers do, you know, use found objects and just create things sculpturally out of out of stuff. The idea that you are putting this stuff together and you're kind of creating this, you're, you know, we're acting like little gods and, and creating our our kind of worlds with our characters mm. and giving them character and meaning and, and identity. And, and, you know, it's a powerful form. And I suppose just doing it more and more and putting it out there and there's all this idea of, you know, a good, a good performance, a good play, you know, a successful there's all these kind of things that kind of really can stop people because they feel like 
it's never going to be as good as this or that. And I don't think it that's really anything because the process is so important and and just the kind of the building of the of the object and the whole discovering what it is that you want to do. <laughs> why mm. do you want to do it? And why do we want to do these things? And that should be at the forefront of, I suppose, any puppeteer's first exploration, like why why am I doing this and why is it so important and what can it be? And Because puppetry is like a fantasy world and these made-up characters. It's like we can do anything, absolutely, and it's sort of like the sky's the limit and I suppose how much you enjoy challenges and how much you enjoy going, you know, into the into the kind of the unknown. I often use that word, the unknown, when we're talking about snuff puppets and and our work. And it's like the unknown is something that is so intriguing and exciting. And it's like I don't know, but I'm going to look and and discover and and um, yeah. You also Just, have the concepts of deep engagement and lasting impact. They're kind of like some yeah. of the cornerstones of what you think good puppetry is. So I want to open the discussion now more broadly to the arts and puppetry in Australia and mm. where you stand on the health of puppetry in Australia. I mean, do you think that there are shows out there right now that are, well, or pre-COVID, who are creating those lasting impacts or those moments of, of deep engagement? If not, what do we need as an industry to, to do to get to those shows? I think you know australian art performing arts is is very much on the on the international landscape and our identity as an australian kind of style of work is very strong i think we don't we're not bogged down with the history of european thousands of years of history of you know puppetry and and similar to like indonesia where they've got their set characters and that's really all you can do and i think australia being young and still discovering new things and still uncovering our identity and what it means. I think there's always going to be this new bubbling up of forms and puppet forms. And I suppose I don't really I single out puppetry. I kind of look at theatre as a whole and I feel like, you know, puppetry is is theatre and it's using objects, but theatre is very much can be used humans and objects and puppets. And it's sort of like I think if maybe we kind of just see puppetry as a as a form of theatre that um, can be explored to the nth degree. It's, it's such a strong Australian kind of um, signature work style that is kind of always going to be there. But I, I do think with the advent of, you know, the internet and all this kind of TV screen work, I suppose it works for puppetry because we're often on the screen and we're often using puppetry in, in a kind of a screen format. I suppose for me, because I value the live experience so much, it's kind of a challenge to kind of think, well, is it going to ever come back to that or do we just have to put our work more and more into film? I think it's as healthy as it's ever been and I wouldn't imagine it. It's a little bit frustrating because I know how much the arts have been devalued by, you know, the current conservative government that we've had and, you know, we lost when George Brandis came in and did his big steal from the Australia Council and basically created his own private little <laughs> arts funding thing. What was it called? Something of excellence. Anyway, we we were on triennial funding from the Australia Council and we lost that. And it was sort of like, you know, it was a shock and the company was almost going to kind of have to pack up. But we kind of just stuck it out and we found our own niche and, we're always going to be on the defensive, I suppose. It's always going to be fighting for our rights to to, yeah. to make our work. And but I was going to say, I you know, I've I feel like I've come from a punk ethos, and punk is pretty much about smash the state, fuck capitalism, you know, do what you want, just be individual and and just be tough and and not care too much about the system because the system's always going to be dragging us down and boxing us in and just feel free to to do what we want. Yeah, I love I love your punk origins and I've been thinking about what it must have been like in uh the bicentenary of Australia was 1988 in terms of its from its invasion, mm. but it it became yeah. a point of a, a focus point 1988 onwards of you know, postmodernism, I guess, and and you yeah. know, we had we had the AIDS crisis was happening, we had stories being told like holding the man, which I remember seeing at Belvoir Street actually 
and there yep. was a giant puppet in holding the man. I wonder if it was one of yours, uh, where <laughs> it, it, it the the character, the figure of the uh, character that was dying of AIDS, was actually replaced with this puppet, this bag of bones, effectively, and it was awful. But it does speak to a particular style of puppetry that I remember from the eighties and nineties and that punk movement. Can you tell us more about? you know, what that time of puppetry was like and what was puppetry doing or even theatre doing at that time? Yeah, well, I suppose it 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 was really about going there are no boundaries and I suppose out of, you know, the 60s and 70s, there was kind of this free, open idea of expression and there were all these kind of happenings and people just sort of taking off their clothes and everyone was kind of just expressing themselves and being very free and open and and, you know, probably at a certain point, it just got indulgent saturation. And it was just like, yeah, this is this is great, but it's sort of like, where's it going? And I just think, you know, moving out of theatres, moving out of the standard kind of black box idea of performing spaces and either hitting the streets or or just going into unusual environments and putting on your work was really like, you know, cutting through all that kind of stuff that institution stuff that we were kind of yeah. believe that we were had to put our work in this kind of certain environment and just that kind of punk ethos of just doing what you want and and believing in the art and the and the passion and and the feeling and the, and the humanness of it and not being tied to a kind of a bunch of structures and systems and I suppose you know grunge and all this I think you know a lot of with our puppets, you know, we always talk about the handmade look of them. You know, we don't we don't want a, this kind of perfect, kind of smoothed over Disney looking object. We want the audiences to see, you know, the the seam marks and the glue and the paint and and in a way to bring people closer to the idea that you know they look at the puppet and think, oh, I could make that. Or you know, there's some kind of like it's not like a factory piece that's multiplied. A thousand times it's a one yeah. unique object that has been made and it's right there in front of you as a as a real life thing and it, yeah it's kind of yeah taking people out of the I suppose I, I can get bored quite quickly and I feel frustrated that life and everyday living can be quite boring and mundane and really kind of pushing people down and people who you know aren't having a life of art and ex- experiencing like that you know, life can seem numbingly boring somehow. And I just feel like, oh, we've got to shake it all up and we've got to show people that, you know, other things can happen and and you can do anything you want. So it's a a real disruptor, I suppose, attitude. And I think the 90s was really kind of when the idea of this from the 60s and 70s that freedom and free will and free expression was right there. But then I suppose the 80s, became the year of decade of greed and and capitalism and and then the 90s was probably just like everyone just going oh this can't be real and we just have to you know shout and scream and and you know get out there and be naughty and be you know troublemakers and because it really in the end it's sort of like we need to be, make trouble more and and speak out more and and for all the the, uh, the Mardi Gras festivals with all their giant puppets and all their giant imagery, mm-hmm. you know, and all this kind of voices that need to be heard, you know, obviously you can't just keep talking and talking at politicians or because politicians are so boring. I mean, I just wish, <laughs> you know, we didn't have politicians. We had cultural leaders and, and oh, you know, we could only. run out <laughs> run our world, you know, have cultural walls if needed, you know. Right. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, yeah. Do you think we're having a second 90s now or do we need uh, one? Um, I think I really couldn't say. I feel there's such an excessive, overwhelming kind of global kind of heaviness or gloom that, you know, unless we all act together as one globe and one one world, then, mm. you know, none of us will have any kind of quality of life or, or um, you know, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't think we ever go back. I think we kind of just reform new new ways of being and new ways of existing. And I just hope and pray that the, um, you know, Trump loses and, and we go back to a, a more kind of humane way of dealing with the world and people and, and, and lives and 
yeah i don't know strange yeah. times oh god they are but i'm you know you're quite uniquely positioned as an artistic director of a, of a theater company of a puppet company and i want to know you know w- what do you need to do or what does puppetry need to do or what will snuff do to keep disrupting and, and to maintain that making trouble because i think i just got that image in my head of those of those <laughs> scullies running around a, a you know a space and i love it and i i want more of it so will will mm. snuff continue to go and make mischief Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we've been very, we've been very um, good and just staying, <clears throat> staying within our five Ks and being very kind of helping the whole community as as Melbourne has been, kind of just keeping it all nice and quiet. But once you know, once things get back to a little bit of normal and outdoors, where even with our heart, so even with our fundraising campaign, part of it is to build a giant inflatable heart. So. At the at the heart of our campaign is this puppet heart that you'll see on the on the website, and it's the heart of everybody. Actually, it's everybody has a number of organs, and one of its organs is its heart. So, but with the heart, we're going to um, make a pattern off it and then expand it to become a eight meter giant inflatable heart that's going to spurt blood in a celebratory kind of purging. Yes. Of- <laughs> that we've actually got a, a um, gig for for the Fringe. So hopefully by the end of November, for the end of Fringe, there will be a giant heart in Fed Square spurting blood and probably skeletons running around catching it in buckets and <laughs> throwing more. me up. I want to <laughs> yeah. do that. And I think, God, yeah, if we can... If we can get one festival out this year, we're going to get Fringe. We're going to keep it. We're going to hold on to Fringe with all our heart. Finally, Andy, who are your heroes in puppetry? Is there anyone of your contemporaries or in your past that you would thank looking back to at your career you've had or that you'd like to tip your hat to? Um, well, there's there's the Peter Schumann from the Bread and Puppet Theatre. Um, they're like... Uh, I got their big fat, there's two big volumes of their books and I was just so drawn into their their work. I mean, that was where I felt like, you know, outdoor puppetry and pro- puppetry protest was what they were doing in the 70s against the Vietnam War and they were creating very strong visual images and very black and white and very stark. So Peter Schumann from there and then there's probably, I think his name's... Um, John Fox, there's a, a company called um, Welfare State who in England who created, in the 70s, created these kind of big outdoor spectacles and they created giant puppets. And it was from, the, they've got a book called Engineers of the Imagination and it actually has a guide to how to make giant puppets with bamboo and cane and backpack frames. And Ooh, they've, got lots go. of, they've got lots of instructions on how to make things and puppetry and costumes and then how to work with communities and all in a kind of a 60s, 70s lens of this kind of community work and going into communities that are quite, you know, downtrodden or marginalised and kind of giving them this crazy theatre spectacle that that everyone participates in. So I suppose, you you know, I love lots of surrealist artists and artists who are able to go out into the imaginative world the creative world and just sort of draw things out of the imagination and create beautiful metaphors for life through their art and characters so I'm always impressed with uh, Jim Henson because I always knew Jim Henson as a kind of a Sesame Street and the Muppets obviously but and how he was his work was like for a Christian American channel or something I was always like oh it was a bit too much but then I read this article about how Jim Henson was like a real anarchist and and if you look at all his work and the way the puppets are just doing this crazy stuff and they're like really, it's really quite out there if you look at what they're doing, like pulling their faces off and bashing each other over the head and just absurd kind of stories that was <laughs> delivered to a whole generation of kids. You know, got to tip your hat to the Hensons for kind of keeping that form so strong. And But something about them, I suppose, too, is that they've always been through the TV lens. I suppose they're not a live puppet form but they've taken advantage of Kermit started off as a doing an ad for baked beans I think so mm. <laughs> yeah yeah get your puppets be and <laughs> <laughs> but yeah ah uh, well that's awesome Andy we are out of mm. time 
So thank you so much for talking sock with us today. You can find Andy and the team at Snuff Puppets at snuffpuppets.com. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you hit subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and we'll talk shop again soon. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. Like us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangesock.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock. Talking Sock.